This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Zanon Capron, founder and managing director of Capron Asia, in a two-part conversation on fintech in Asia. In the second part, we will shift the focus from China out to the Asia Pacific, specifically on ICOs and digital payments. Welcome back with me, Zanon Capron, founder and director of Capron Asia and China FinTech. And of course, with him, I would like to have an hour conversation. Definitely, Zanon, we have talked about FinTech in China in our last episode. And in this episode, I want to get out of China and talk about the rest of Asia Pacific. I know you have been very active in the Asia Pacific region. Can you talk about the key developments in fintech specific to Asia Pacific outside China? Like in the last episode, we talked about digital payments and banking services. So I just relay one observation I made. Alipay and Tempe have been very aggressive in Southeast Asia. And I'm seeing countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, even Singapore that actually starting to have the Alipay and Tempe infrastructure. Because when I turn on my WeChat now, I can just start to link my credit card from my local bank to these platforms. Where do you see them being in the outside of Asia Pacific? Yeah, no. That's probably a good a good place to start and transition from our previous discussion, the previous episode to this one is how these Chinese giants are expanding internationally. And I think, firstly, it's good to look at the context of where these giants are coming from. So obviously, Alipay and, and well, Ant Financial is the kind of owner of Alipay and then Tencent owning the WeChat Pay product. Domestically, they combine for about 95% of the mobile payments market here in China. And as we've seen retail transactions increasingly shift to digital and more specific mobile. That's obviously very significant, but they sitting on huge piles of money from listings and from just the profitability of their existing business. These companies have been looking internationally and we could kind of look at three phases of their international expansion. The first was following the Chinese tourists. So setting up acceptance networks in places like Hong Kong and Singapore and Southeast Asia and Western Europe, where the Chinese tourists would go. So the fact that you could use Alipay to buy a purse on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, as an example, that was kind of the first wave of the expansion of these platforms. The second wave was strategic acquisitions. And so we saw that in India with Ant Financial and Alibaba's investment in Paytm, continued growth in that space. We saw it with Tencent, it would send money in Thailand and Southeast Asia. And now we, we saw Ali and Finance try to do the same thing with MoneyGram in the US. So these investments were very strategic into markets where the payments infrastructure wasn't as developed as it could have been, or, or where the mobile payments infrastructure wasn't as developed as it could have been, and really trying to capture market share through that way. The third phase is kind of what you pointed to, Bernard, with your own experience with the WeChat Pay wallet, is where you can actually set up a local currency wallet. And so in places like Singapore, Hong Kong, South Africa, you can actually have a Alipay or WeChat Pay denominated wallet in Hong Kong dollars or Singapore dollars or South African rand, as an example. And so that's really the third wave of the expansion for these companies. And, and we believe that it's really just the start because they are really taking advantage of these markets that the mobile payments infrastructure or uptake is not particularly great. To, to be fair, in Singapore, people use cash quite a bit and we're only starting to see a transition to mobile payments. And so these giants are really trying to take advantage of that by setting up local wallets and local entities in these markets to, to accept payments and to help people get on board with mobile payments. So 
That's certainly one of the trends that we've seen for fintech across Asia recently is the expansion of these tech giants into other markets. I definitely would want to bring up DBS, the Development Bank of Singapore, which is actually doing their regional expansion using digital bank concept as well. I think some very similar to Alipay and Tenpay. Do you see these local players being swamped by the Chinese tech giants? And of course, I would also be it wouldn't be fair if I missed out companies like PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, who are all within the region because it's an open marketplace. How did, how did that look? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and DBS, not just for payments and their DigiBank initiative, but in, in general is certainly one of the more innovative banks within Southeast Asia and without, within Asia in general, I think, with the way that they've angled themselves and used innovation as a strategic priority for the organization that's reflected in their results and their traction in some of these products in the market. I think the challenge for a DBS or a Visa or a PayPal is still Going back to what we kind of touched on in the previous episode is that WeChat Pay and Alipay to a certain extent are lifestyle platforms. So I can use my WeChat wallet to chat with friends, to rent a shared bike, like a MoBike, what you have there in Singapore as well, to order food online, to book movie tickets, to buy plane tickets. I can use it for so many different things. And what we're seeing here in China is this transition into kind of social payments, So to give an example, a friend of mine a a few weeks ago was traveling to Hong Kong with a friend, with a colleague from her office. And so the colleague had already booked the flight and they wanted to be on the same flight. So she just shared the itinerary with this friend. This friend was able to, within the WeChat app, click on the itinerary and without leaving the app, buy the plane ticket. And so that's the challenge going forward, I think, not just here in China, but around the region and globally is these platforms have developed as kind of one-trick ponies. So uh, PayPal, you use the PayPal app for moving money. DBS, you use your DBS app and the DBS platform for conducting your finances. But these, the WeChat platforms and increasingly platforms like the Line, you use for many different things. And so that's really going to be the competitive challenges is, are you the default app for an individual to use on a daily basis? And certainly here in China, WeChat is the default app for many people when they use their mobile phone. And it's very difficult to dethrone that and and pull people away from that. The number of times that I've used an ICBC app here in China is very few because there's the only reason I would use it is when I can't use my WeChat wallet or my Alipay wallet to do that because people are going to be trending towards these lifestyle platforms that really have a multitude of different functionalities. And so I think that will be the challenge for these platforms going forward. Now, the good thing is that there isn't, you know, although WeChat is used there in Singapore, it's not the it's not the be-all, end-all of social messaging apps. I, you know, WhatsApp is very heavily used as our line and other platforms as well. And, and same thing in Southeast Asia. So these platforms still have a fighting chance. But the question will be, how can they create this, this value proposition that goes beyond social and beyond payments to include many different aspects of individuals' lifestyles. And that, that will be the thing that compels people to use these platforms for their financial lives as well. I mean, in Japan, Line and Line Pay is definitely the default payment. And I don't think WeChat will ever have a chance of doing that. And I know Tencent invested in Line and then in Kakao Talk in Korea, where they also have their own payment systems. I think this is a continuing conversation and we still do not know whether Facebook and WhatsApp would ever get into the space too, right? 
But I think one thing that really showed up in how the Chinese tech giants are moving into the Asia-Pacific with their digital payment system is that their infrastructure is really new and is designed for emerging market. Do you see like countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, or you know even Thailand where the markets are still very emerging. And I mean, the, the Visa MasterCard penetration in those countries are really negligent, less than 0.5%. So wouldn't that new infrastructure become the dominant infrastructure in the future for them? Yeah, and I think that's clearly in the Ant Financial and Tencent strategy has really been focused on emerging markets where the payments infrastructure isn't so established. So when you look at, uh, in India, their investment in Paytm, I mean, clearly India is an area where Digital payments are developing very rapidly. And then Southeast Asia and Thailand, you know, those investments have been very focused on countries where I would say either in a Japan or Korea where things are very well established and there's opportunity to kind of grow the existing digital payments market or in markets where the infrastructure is not very developed. And these aren't necessarily poor countries as well. I mean, these, these are countries that are, have been developing for a while, but just where the emphasis hasn't been on mobile payments or digital payments. And so I think very clearly they're focused on those, those markets where they can bring their infrastructure to bear and provide a better experience for individuals or even companies in those markets. And, and when you look at PayPal and Visa and these guys, they've, they've had plenty of opportunity to get into these markets. And and in many cases do have good penetration into the markets as well. But it's really bringing this new model of leveraging mobile payments to drive value for the individuals. And so that's what Tencent and Ant Financial are really trying to take advantage of while they do this expansion. This is going to be bad for Visa, MasterCard, and to a certain extent, these developed countries' payment systems, isn't it? Because they are not designed for these markets. And I think the infrastructure is actually more costly. And I think this is also partially why Facebook and WhatsApp is having so much problems in trying to develop payments within their platform because they have to integrate with these backend infrastructure and it costs them more than where in Alipay and Tempe it's just a it's just a fraction of that cost. Yeah. And we talked about this again in the last episode, but when you talk about the way that Ant Financial and, and Tencent originally set up their payment networks here in China was they set up their own clearing. So they basically went to all the banks and set up their accounts and then were able to clear the process, the payments directly themselves without relying on any third-party infrastructure, even China Unipay. The, the challenge for companies like you know, a PayPal, as an example, I mean, PayPal started off as a US company and immediately after you know, reaching saturation in the US, which may have been you know, the population of the US around that time, maybe 200 million people, to get to 201 million, they had to expand internationally. And then to get beyond that, they had to expand internationally. And when you're expanding into markets like Europe or the US, the consumer and the infrastructure is somewhat homogeneous. So, you know, the way that an individual in the US interacts with a PayPal platform is somewhat similar to what the way that a Brit would interact with a PayPal platform or even a European. Of course, it would be in a different language, but the way they would use the platform is somewhat similar, just because of the shared histories in those, in those countries. When you look at Asia, everything is so different. The payment systems are so different, and there's no cohesiveness across the region when you look at cross-border payments or, or payments in general. So the payment system in Singapore is different than it is in Malaysia, is different than it is in Thailand, Korea, Japan, Australia. 
whole different. So when platforms like PayPal expanded into Asia, the initial focus was, okay, we're just going to use what we've used in the past. We're just going to use this, this US platform or the UK platform, the standard technology that we've used in those markets to expand internationally. And that, you know, especially here in China, we saw them struggle with that because they brought the platform to China and they didn't adapt it for local, local needs or characteristics. And that's not even looking at the technology itself, but just the consumer habits. They said, okay, this is the model that works in other markets. It's going to work in China. It turned out that it didn't work in China. And, and so companies like PayPal struggled here. And similarly, Visa, you know, the urban legend that we had heard was that China Union Pay actually approached Visa and said, hey, would you help us develop the local payment infrastructure here in China? And Visa said, no, they didn't want to, they didn't want to work with China Union Pay. Now Visa is essentially locked out, of, locked out of the Chinese market as China Union Pay dominates card payments. That access to market infrastructure and, and how these companies expand internationally is quite interesting. So it's very early days for Tencent and, and financial. I mean, although they are in many countries, the way they've gotten into those countries are through partnerships. So uh, as an example, we've and financial has a partnership with First Data in the U.S. And so First Data owns many millions of acquiring relationships in the U.S. And so and financial is leveraging that to access the market. But in terms of setting up their own wallet and their own infrastructure in these markets, it's going to take them time. And they're going to face a lot of the same challenges that PayPal faced in the opposite direction. I mean, most of the people that use uh, WeChat that I know are people that either live in China or have lived in China or have some kind of connection to China. But for, say, you know, a Singaporean who has no direct connection to China, would they use that? It remains to be seen. So there's a lot of challenges that I think these companies will face as they continue to try and expand internationally as well. Just to close the conversation, I mean, in terms of banking service, have you seen things like Yuebao, you know, things with robo-advisors or even P2P lending that have actually been very active in the Asia-Pacific market? Uh, China, you mean Chinese Chinese players, but maybe the, even the analog of these players. I mean, they may be locally made in Asia Pacific and basically taking what is, has worked in China and bring it into the Southeast Asia market or Northeast Asia. I think it's still very early days for the expansion of China fintech in general outside of China. I think you know, for a lot of these models that we're looking at, the way that people borrow money, the way that people pay their friends, is very different from market to market, and China is no exception on that. So. I think we will, over the course of 2018 and going onwards, see more expansion of some of these Chinese platforms into foreign markets. But I think it's still very early days. I think we, we have seen some small forays. So I know that Lufax has expanded there into Singapore, Lufax being one of the fintech unicorns here in China that will probably list later this year. So I think we have seen some expansion, but I think it's very tentative for the moment. You know, in the case of Lufax, it might have been to pad up the story around the IPO to say that they have an international presence in Singapore is probably part of the IPO story rather than a, a sound business decision for the near term, at least. But certainly going forward, I think there's a lot of lessons that these platforms have learned in China that they can expand as they look internationally into some of these foreign markets as well and bring a lot of value, to be honest, to the financial markets in other parts of Asia or, or globally. So... I want to come to the most interesting part of the conversation, which is the cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. I think in Asia Pacific, outside of China, they are almost intricately linked because 
ICOs are allowed. But before that, I, I think it's best that actually we re-educate our audience what an ICO is. So can you talk about that first? And then we talk about what the ICOs is actually doing in the Asia Pacific. Yeah. If you talk to some of my colleagues in the financial industry, they would be able to define ICOs very simply as scams or Ponzi schemes or, or something along those lines. But Realistically, what ICOs are, what they attempt to be, is a new form of fundraising based off kind of blockchain technology and the concepts of blockchain. So typically, ICOs are are launched by companies that have a blockchain solution, blockchain technology-based solution that they're trying to bring to market. And by offering tokens, which either represent assets or utility in that blockchain solution, uh, people sell these tokens to the market and raise money typically through cryptocurrencies. So they'll offer tokens for Bitcoin or Ethereum and people will buy the tokens, which then have some kind of uh, utility or value in that network. And in theory, will increase in value over time is a lot of what these platforms are selling. So that's the basic concept of ICOs. I was being told by one of my Twitter followers that I was being very charitable when I say that 95% of the ICOs are shams. My question to you is, I mean, the ICOs are creating a bubble in the fintech market in Asia Pacific at the moment. Have you seen things that are interesting in the ICOs that may deter me from thinking otherwise? Yeah, so, you know, whether the number is 95% or 90%, certainly there are a lot of money grabs that are out there. And when you look at the development, not just in fintech, but across multiple different industries, ICOs have become a way for individuals to raise a lot of money that they may not have been able to raise previously. So if you look at the VC space, I mean, one of the functions of venture capital is to weed out the good ideas from the bad ideas. And so if you were a startup, with rare exception, you would need to go on a roadshow and visit and meet with many, many different VCs to capture funding. In the ICO world, with only a few lines of code and a white paper that may or may not make sense, you can raise tens of millions of dollars. And we've seen that happen. And we've seen that ongoing uh, you know, with certain platforms like EOS that just continue to grow you know, over time, that their, their, their crowd sale is continually open and they're continually raising money. And it's very difficult for an individual when you see these kind of returns, when you see things like IconX, one of the large ICOs from last year, is returning 10 times the money. It's very difficult to find any asset around the region that returns that much or even globally. So it's clear why there is demand for these platforms is because a lot of people come in and speculate and they think, okay, well, I'm going to put in one Ethereum today and I'm going to take out 10 Ethereum in a week. And you know, even looking at some of these business models, I've been swayed by it as well. When I see there, there's so much FOMO or fear of missing out on these platforms that bad ideas don't matter. The idea of making a huge return trumps any kind of realistic view of the feasibility of the underlying project. And so I think we've seen that in a lot of things within the region. Now, there are some good ideas that are out there. And there's a lot of focus right now on creating cryptocurrency banks We've seen a number of ICOs over the past year. We've had you know, 10x there in Singapore be focused on acceptance for cryptocurrencies. So there's a lot of ideas that if cryptocurrencies take off and become an integral part of our society in general, will be very valuable. If everybody is carrying around cryptocurrency, then your ability to transact in cryptocurrency is, is very important. And that kind of validates some of the business models of companies like 10x that are trying to address that segment of the market. And there are other things, you know, there was one, a recent one uh, that was very successful called B Token, 
that was focused on decentralized Airbnb. So essentially the sharing model, but decentralized. There's a lot of these things that I would say aren't necessarily solving issues in the market, but are improving the existing processes in the market. So, you know, I wouldn't say, I think 95% is, I would go in the opposite direction. I think that maybe if you look at the total of all the ICOs that are coming out, because there are many that end up being non-successful, that is accurate. But I think in many cases, there are really interesting business models and ideas that wouldn't have necessarily made it past the venture capital rounds in the past, which for good or bad reasons, you know, maybe they didn't make it past because it was a really bad idea. But, you know, there are many people that wouldn't have access to that network that wouldn't have been able to get funding through traditional means that may have very good ideas to bring to market. And so ICOs and that kind of channel of funding give them an opportunity to actually go to market and try to realize the potential of their business model. From my point of view, I think that the cryptocurrency and blockchain technology with relations to ICO is a pretty early phase of the technology evolution. So to me at the moment, everybody is just throwing ideas and testing it with what the current technology is. Of, and of course, the current technology is still building, right? They have changed the core tenants of the, how the, block, the blockchain works for the Bitcoin into the other parts of the other industry verticals. My question to you is, at this phase to me, it's more like in the 1993 where the dot-coms were on sale, everybody just buy dot-coms and hoping that they'll make a killing out of it if you have pizza dot com. So, and then there will be another phase where the blockchain that will be a killer app. Do you see that moving in that direction? Yeah, so I think the thing to remember around all of the space is how new all of this is that we're looking at. I mean, this concept of blockchain is about a decade old and came out of obviously the, the Bitcoin blockchain. So the application, the final state of the market is yet to be seen. There seem to be a lot of assumptions by the ICO community that there will be a blockchain for everything because the, the number of ICOs that we're seeing and the the ones that are coming to market, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them uh, every month that are coming to market. And realistically, you know, I don't know how many internet banks or cryptocurrency or, or you know, distributed banks for cryptocurrency we need in the future. I think the, the fact that somebody explained to me said, you know, if you look at the traditional banking industry, there are thousands of banks all around the world. So of course we need thousands of crypto banks. There's a lot of assumptions that go into that, but it'll be interesting to see how the market develops in the future, because I think one of the challenges, and if we step back to the financial industry just for a second and we look at the application of blockchain technology there, I think a couple of years ago, banks were very excited about it and very excited about the opportunities to use this. And that was kind of going in with the fintech rage in general, because there is a lot more focus and interest in how can we use technology to disrupt the traditional way of doing business. But I think the realization that many of these financial institutions have come to is that we don't need blockchain for everything. We don't need this distributed ledger technology for everything. There are certain applications where it does make sense, but there are other applications where a simple Oracle database makes as much sense. You know, I think the the risks that we run into with kind of the ICOs, both in the and, and blockchain technology in the commercial space and in the consumer space is the fact that we could have thousands of different blockchains that, again, then all need to be integrated. And we've gone through that in the financial industry where we had tens of disparate systems on the back end supporting, say, the consumer bank within a bank that then all had to be integrated onto one core banking platform. We run the risk of having 10 or 15 different blockchain solutions that need to be integrated then on the, the back end platform as well. So 
I think certainly on the commercial side of blockchain and digital distributed ledger, there's been a little bit of a realization over the past couple of years that where this should be used and where it probably shouldn't be used. And I think we may see the same thing on the ICO side. I think certainly we will see a rationalization and more regulation and consolidation around ICOs. I think the fact that the, these platforms are raising the, the amount of money that they are is probably unrealistic in the long term, despite how good or bad the ideas are. We see a lot more consolidation and rationalization around this as, as the returns come down a little bit and, and people have to get a little bit more picky about what they're investing in, certainly. I just have one more thought on the ICO and the blockchain space. I think a lot is also to do with the technology development of the blockchain space. I mean, the way I've seen so far, some of the most interesting blockchain developments is actually in cybersecurity because of the immutability of the blockchain that you can actually do a lot of cybersecurity defense. I've seen companies in Estonia, Israel, that are doing this part of cybersecurity, but literally moving out from this whole cryptocurrency thing and really looking using the technology for very specific nuanced use. Here's my other thought as well. One part of the cryptocurrency is the amount of computation you need. I think maybe there is an existing limit to the hardware infrastructure today to process those computations. And it probably would take some time for the new infrastructure to come in such that this cryptocurrency or even blockchain transactions would become much faster and that's when a decentralized system will become much more useful in the financial markets. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think you're right. I think one of the biggest challenges with Bitcoin is, is the concept of proof of work. And as, as we talked about earlier, you know, the, the amount of energy that's being burned to confirm these Bitcoin transactions is massive. And, uh, and so people that are looking at different ways of doing the confirmation, whether that be proof of stake or, or other methodologies. And so I think that space will evolve. Certainly, there are ways to achieve somewhat similar computational security and immutability through other methods than proof of work. So other ways of confirming transactions without having to expend as much energy. And indeed, in many cases, I mean, if it's a if, if you look at a blockchain solution that's shared by 10 or 15 banks, there's no reason that you need to have terawatts of energy being burned to confirm those transactions. You just need to have majority trust within a smaller network to achieve the, the trustless interoperability and, and distributed nature of, of blockchain technology to achieve those goals. So I think we'll still certainly see this develop as well. Governments will probably get more concerned about the energy usage of Bitcoin technology. I mean, the comparison is always, well, Bitcoin takes less energy than it does to extract gold out of the earth. But I think that's kind of a false comparison because I think they're, they're really still two different markets and, and two different use cases. Although I believe that Bitcoin has value and, uh, you know, will continue to grow in acceptance of cryptocurrencies in general. Gold is still something that everybody believes has value and, and is, is generally accepted around the world. So, you know, I think we'll still see a lot of development in how these systems are secured and immutable. The cryptography is used to make them immutable, but it, we're still early days very much in this space. I have a philosophical view on this to why the Bitcoin, the value will never be zero. Because I think the whole Bitcoin debate is actually boils down to two things. Do you trust the value of money through centralized systems such as central banks? Or do you trust the value of having two people between you and me can confirm that value? So as long as two people between that will actually believe the Bitcoin value, it's just a matter of degree of belief. That's just pure math from thinking about this. 
It, it's a good point as well, and, and something we haven't touched on, but is is definitely coming in the future is the general digitization of cash. And so when you look at particular jurisdictions like Sweden, as an example, Sweden is reaching, I believe it's 90 or 95% of retail transactions are digital. And for governments around the world, we have to admit that they want, they want to go with digital because when money is digital, there's a lot more traceability and transparency that governments can have on what the citizens are doing with money. I mean, one of the reasons that the US dollar is the number one currency used for terrorism financing or money laundering is the fact that it's accepted in so many places and it's very you know, moving a million dollars around is it's a few suitcases. It's not, you know, a truckload of, of renminbi that you would need to move a million dollars in China. And I think in general, we're seeing a lot of talk about the Chinese government and other governments looking at creating a distributed ledger style digital currency. And whether it's distributed ledger or digital currency in general, it's, it's a shift that globally governments are pushing for. So, you know, the sooner that they can get their societies digital, the better, because it gives that transparency into what citizens are doing with their money, as well as reduces cost. So it reduces the cost of printing and transporting money around. But the implication for that is if it is a distributed ledger, very much like you just pointed out, do you trust your government? Because in Europe, in many places, there are negative interest rates. And if we look back at what happened in Greece a couple of years ago, the government limited the amount of money that people could take out of the ATMs or take out of the banks. And then they took a haircut of all of the individuals' deposits. And so the very, very much the same thing could happen. I mean, traditionally, the bank was the safest place to put your money. But if you're in an environment where there are negative interest rates, if you put in 100 euros today, you may only take out 99 euros tomorrow because the government is actually charging you to hold your money. And, and so how do you avoid that? Well, in the typical scenario, you would take your money out and you would put it in your mattress. But if all money is digital, you're not going to be able to do that. And the government is going to be able to charge you negative interest just for holding the currency because they will have control over all of the currency. And if they wanted to do that, if Greece wanted to do that and take 10% of everybody's money, it would just be flipping a switch. And so I think that's the interesting flip side of the, the downside of all this digitization is the power that it gives governments globally. I mean, by no means, I'm not a big Bitcoin maximalist or an anarchist, but this is the reality of the way that things could be going where the government has a lot more control about what you do with money in your pocket. So when you transfer it to a friend, uh, it may not be that easy in the future. The Bitcoin value is actually associated to how much distrust people actually have in the central banks. So that's how I see the Bitcoin value at the moment. But it is always a great conversation to have with you over this hour, Zanon. So I, in closing, I have two questions for you. So the first question I want to ask you is, can you recommend a book, podcast, or movie, or anything that has impacted your work life or personal life recently? Completely unrelated to the financial industry, but we, my wife and I, last October, took a trip to Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. And one of the interesting books that we read up in the re, the, that trip was a book called The Great Game. And that talks about uh, the British and European powers struggle for Central Asia. And it brings a lot of context into what we're looking at today. I mean, the US government is mired in many conflicts in Afghanistan. And that's something that historically has, has been the case for centuries. You know, the, the, the British uh, struggled with that, as did the Russians in, in Afghanistan and in that area. So uh, just a completely different view of 
uh, away from the financial industry, but, but a completely different view of that region that brought a lot of the current historical context into my mind. I, I thought it was a very interesting book. I have a book to recommend, which is called Cracking the China Conundrum, Why Conventional Wisdom About China is Wrong by Wang Yukong, which is actually pretty interesting uh, because he it was actually the managing director for the World Bank in China and Russia. And he had a very interesting way of looking at why conventional economic wisdom had failed and, and explained why exactly China is still growing despite all the doom and gloom views from the most well-known economists in the world. So my last question to you, Zanon, how do my audience find you? Yeah, so our website is uh, capronasia.com, and that's also our Twitter handle. So that's probably the easiest way to reach out. That's K-A-P-R-O-N-Asia.com. And that's probably the easiest way to reach out. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and, and most other social platforms as well. And you can find me at Bernard Leung and at bernardleung.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me, feedback, give me a five star on iTunes or a star on Overcast. So, or drop me feedback from time to time. Once again, Zanon, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Bernard.